If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Hi, listener. I'm sure you've heard us talk about Bowery Boys Walks, our small walking tours that are led by expert guides through neighborhoods like Greenwich Village, the Lower East Side, and Harlem. But did you know that we also offer private tours for small groups and companies, schools, families, and friends? And we can work with you to find or even develop the tour that's perfect for your group. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com and click on Private Tours to learn more. The Bowery Boys episode 413, the new New York Storytellers. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today on the show, for a change, instead of looking back over the history of New York, we're looking forward to the future, Greg. (laughs) Yes, to a new generation of people who are celebrating New York and telling the city's story through mediums that are not podcasts or books, Mm-mm. the Mm-mm. visual artists and storytellers of social media, the influencers, the content creators. Our guests today, they're not putting on makeup or lip syncing to a pop song. Not that there's anything wrong with that, oh, no. of course. No, today we are celebrating the historians and journalists and photographers who are bringing New York City to life on social media platforms like Instagram. Because there are a million different ways to tell a good story. And the guests we have on the show today are doing it in photography and videos, exposing new audiences to the best of New York City, its landmarks, its people, and even its diners. Now, people who support us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys know that for, for the past few months, we have been interviewing creators who have a unique New York City focus. And today, you will hear excerpts from those interviews. These interviews are with Nicholas Heller, a.k.a. New York Nico, the filmmaker and photographer who manages to capture the magic of the city's most interesting and colorful people. You'll also hear from Riley Arthur, who explores the city's diners, great and small, under the handle Diners of NYC. In our conversation, we even debate what a diner even is. It's debatable. It is. And finally, we bring you a conversation with a man who celebrates New York City through its landmarks. The tour guide and historian Tommy Silk, who posts really fascinating videos of the city's most interesting and sometimes overlooked architectural gems on his Instagram page, Landmarks of New York. And we urge you all to seek them out on Instagram. Because to be honest, they're visual artists. And you'll get the full flavor of their work by going and checking it out for yourself. We'd like to thank our producer, Kieran Gannon, for coming up with the idea of this show and putting together the interviews. And Greg, maybe I'll just note here that I will be gone for the next couple of shows because I'm working on something kind of top secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, it won't be too surprising to people who have been listening to the show for a while. That's about all I can say. No more clues. So, grab a mug as we sit down over a coffee and some bagels and some schmear mm. and an iPhone to talk the characters, diners, and landmarks of New York City. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Nicholas Heller, 
filmmaker and the man and the talent behind the very successful Instagram page, New York Nico, with 1.1 million followers. Because we're going to talk about that. You've got some profound reach, Nick. We're very happy to have you here. I appreciate that. I've been a long time (laughs) fan of the show. So this is surreal to be seeing your faces and hearing your voices. (laughs) For those who aren't among the 1.1 million and other admirers of yours, of which there are many, can you just sort of describe what the objective and the parameters are of uh, of New York Nico? Yeah, I mean, 10 years later, and I'm still trying to figure that out. The <laughs> I guess the, the, the inception of the account came after I did a, a little stint in Los Angeles. I'm sorry, I'm getting into the long story. I don't know if you want the... Unfurl. Unfurl it. (laughs) Well, okay, so then I'll go even further back and eventually answer your question. You were born in New York. I was born and raised in New York. I grew up uh, right around Union Square, and I went to college in Boston at Emerson for film production, and I started making low-budget underground music videos while I was out there. And I moved to Brooklyn sunset park and i was making these low budget music videos and i finally felt like i exhausted every all my resources in new york and the the natural <laughs> next step would be to move to los angeles so i moved and, to and this is like the aughts oh no th- i mean this was like 2011 i graduated in 2011 okay. mm-hmm. um, so i guess it was around mm-hmm. 2012 so i moved to los angeles on a whim try to make it as a music video director but I was very unprepared. I did not have a driver's license because I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I failed my test three times while I was out there. So I had to bike mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, I wasn't booking any work. It was quite miserable. So after six months, I decided to move back to New York. And one day I just went to Union Square Park, which was essentially my backyard contemplating like what my next move was going to be because I knew I couldn't make it as a music video director any longer. And I noticed this New York city street character celebrity who I'd seen all throughout high school, but was too shy to go and talk to prior to this (laughs) because in my eyes, he was a celebrity just because everyone kind of knew who he was. And I used this sort of low point crossroad period in my life as an opportunity to go and talk to him. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even say and who, who this was he? Was. Who? Yeah. Who is this person? Ted Avon. His name is Ted Avon and he is the six foot seven freestyling healing Jew. Um, and he carries around <laughs> a, so he's a six foot seven white dude with dreadlocks who carries around or carried around a 10 pound sign that said the six foot seven Jew yes. will freestyle rap and heal you. I was so nervous before talking to him because I was like, oh, this guy's just going to tell me to screw off. But he was so nice. And we ended up walking around the city together. And, you know, after like two hours of hanging out and talking, I asked if I could make a documentary on him. And I'd never made a documentary before, but figured, you know, this guy was so fascinating. I could probably pull together a five minute sort of slice of life piece on on him and i did and it turned out pretty good you know um in retrospect obviously it's it's very rough because it was the the first time i'd ever made a documentary but at the time i was really really happy with it and had so much fun and then i had the idea to kind of continue this this as a series where i profiled new york city street celebrities so i went on to create 16 episodes of these five minute slice of life films on New York City characters like Larry the Birdman of Washington Square Park or Wendell, the homeless fashion designer of Union Square. Even Curtis Sliwa was in an episode where I followed him and the Garden Angels around. And you were, this is your training, right? I mean, like you were trained to do music videos. You just kind of like switched subject matter over to something that had been in your backyard the whole time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we made 16 episodes. I I called the series, or I called the series Know Your City, N-O, Your City. And they're still on YouTube. You can check them out if you're interested. But yeah, that was was almost like 10 years ago at this point. So how did this transition then into this Instagram account? So I was making these little films and putting them on YouTube. 
and not a lot of people were watching them. And I was really bummed because everyone who was watching them was obsessed with it. And <laughs> I wanted to reach a larger audience. And it was right around the time that Instagram introduced video. I can't remember if it was they introduced video or they introduced 60 second video. Um, they went from 15 seconds to 60 mm -hmm. seconds. But I started essentially filming the same characters that I profiled in the Know Your City series. But instead, I just shot on my phone with no cuts, no editing, and I would just throw it up on my Instagram in real time. So rather than like telling this, you know, full narrative of one person, I would have them become reoccurring characters and show them in a more like raw way. Yeah. And people really started to gravitate towards that. And then, you know, so it kind of started with people, characters, and then turned into just like my lens on New York City, which is first and foremost, the people, but it's also the places, the events, stuff like that. And, you know, w within a couple of years, I kind of just nicknamed myself the unofficial talent scout of New York because I felt like. <laughs> A lot of people were asking me what you asked me, which is what is my thing? What is my Instagram? And that was the, kind of the best way to explain what I do is like I'm I'm the unofficial talent scout of the city. I, I find interesting talent in the city and I give them a platform for the rest of the world to see. Now, during the pandemic in particular, it seems like is when people really made a connection because you were kind of out there in the street. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, there were a few things that kind of boosted my following. And the first thing was the best New York accent contest, which <laughs> I did in April of 2020. And what that was, was, you know, we were all at home, everyone was bored. I decided to put a call out on my Instagram for people to submit videos explaining why they have the best New York accent. And at first it went, you know, very slowly, only like friends of mine were submitting, but then celebrities started catching on to it. Um, so like Alec Baldwin, Chaz Palminteri, <laughs> Debbie Mazar, all these kind of like New York royalty started submitting to the, to the contest. And it just was like a, a big moment that everyone was at home, everyone was on their phone and they had this to look forward to. And then, you know, everyone covered it from the New York times to the New York post and so that was a that was a big a big moment for me and then you know I did a few other contests in the next you know couple months I did a best New York t-shirt contest and a best photo contest and we raised a ton of money for charity and in I would say maybe May and June that's when I guess we started realizing as a city that these small businesses are really going to need help because they're not getting the foot traffic and still having to pay rent and so I went to visit um, Henry Yao, who's the owner of Army Navy Bag Store in Soho. A friend of mine had reached out and said that Henry was struggling and, and needed some help. A customer of his actually had started a GoFundMe for him. And um, I went to go visit him, spoke to him for a bit. And I just made a post about Henry and, and what's going on with his business throughout the pandemic. And um, we ended up raising like over $50,000 for him in a matter of days, um, which was able to help wow. you know, keep his business afloat. I was just so shocked that through the power of social media, we were able to come together as a city and, and help this struggling business owner. So I kind of just kept doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think the next one was Punjabi Delhi and, you know, then a Bon Me shop and it just kept going and going and going and. You know, I used the hashtag mom and pop drop to highlight these businesses and, and, you know, support any GoFundMe that they might have. Yeah. So that was, I think, the most rewarding point in my Instagram career because <laughs> I was able to help a lot of people and, and also make a lot, a lot of long lasting friendships, you know. What are your techniques for approaching people and then getting them to be comfortable with you. Cause I find that many of your videos are, there's a real intimacy and I'm always like, does he know everyone here? I mean, I mean, many of them are your friends. It sounds like you have been introduced to a lot of them. That's a good question. I, I get asked that a lot. Um, I don't really know how to answer it. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of something that comes naturally, but you know, I would say approach, obviously approach people with compassion and a genuine interest. 
because if if you're not then they'll see right through you and maybe won't want to speak with you but that's really it i mean i don't really speak to anyone i'm not genuinely fascinated by so i would hope it comes across as as genuine and sincere mm-hmm. but i also you know i get introduced to a lot of people i generally like i prefer it that way because it's nice to have someone be able to vouch for you and i've just made so many mm-hmm. connections throughout the years that if there is someone who i'd like to meet who maybe i saw on instagram or tiktok i most definitely have like some sort of a connection to them through six degrees of kevin bacon (laughs) (laughs) so just as an example like take the green lady of brooklyn so the green lady actually (laughs) i'm 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 glad you asked about her because hers was unconventional approach for me oh and can you explain for people who don't know her well, everyone who she must is. love the Green Lady. But uh, she's <laughs> a lovely, lovely woman in her 80s who lives in Brooklyn who wears all green. Not only does she wear all green, but her entire house is green. Like everything in her house, house is yes. green. She's not doing it as like a cry for attention or anything like that. She just genuinely loves the color green and the happiness that it brings people. I saw her in the street one day after I, I had a shoot. And I was so excited to see her because I'd seen some photos and video of her and I I was a little starstruck. So I didn't get her contact (laughs) info or anything. I just took a photo, put it on Instagram. And a few years after that, you know, I I hadn't seen her since and I really wanted to reconnect with her. I kind of wanted to, (laughs) you know, do maybe a, a longer form piece on her. So I was just like asking everyone I knew if they had a connection to her. You know, I was I was reaching out to people who had photographed her and, you know, no one was able to help me. And, oh, of course, I, I she has an Instagram and I would reach out to her on Instagram, but I was getting mm-hmm. no response. And then one day, I believe it was the day before my birthday, um, I saw her on the street and I was just so surprised to see her. And I filmed the entire interaction of me like seeing <laughs> it. Well, I saw her and a split second later, I turned on my my camera and then went up to her and just told her, you know, how big of a fan I was. And and uh, I ended up getting her her info. And, you know, a week later, we went out to lunch together. And But you visit her. You you have a film where you visit her in her home, right? Yeah, so, so I mean, at this point, we've, we've become, like, very close. Like, we talk all the time. I go to her house, no. you know, a lot. I just got a dog. She just met my dog the other day. She makes lunch. I'll visit her garden. <laughs> is the lunch green? The lunch is usually green, yeah. She makes a lot of like vegetables. Wow. Stuff. Yeah. And she has a dog, right? She has a dog, Gigi, whose eyes are white, but mm-hmm. it reflects green because of everything in her apartment. So it looks like her <laughs> dog has like green eyes. This is the whitest question possible for someone like you. But what are. Can you. Give us like an example, just the first thing that pops up in your head that would f- fit this description. The weirdest experience that mm. you have ever had, or one of them going up and capturing someone. Something that ends up positive, maybe, but like I'm sure with all the people that you meet, you must have had some very unusual interactions. <laughs> Here's a, a good example. Like January of 2020, I go to the polar plunge like I do every year. And there's this one guy who I captured who had just done the polar plunge and his reaction to doing the polar plunge was like the purest thing I've ever seen. Like he, he looks up into the sky and like, thanks God. And like, it was just so beautiful and genuine and I didn't get the chance to meet him. But of course, like people that were able to identify him and I connected through him that way. Yeah. So like stuff like that is is really cool. You know, there's another Tiger Hood is, is another fan favorite on my page. He plays golf with milk containers around New York City. And actually meeting him was a, a very interesting story. But, um, you know, he he's known for that playing. Golf. I'm sorry. He plays he plays golf with milk containers you mean he He just puts them on their side and shoots in like his own putt putt (laughs) yes well it's more of a driving range but he'll he'll stuff uh milk containers with newspaper and uh hit it with a golf club into like a milk crate 
and he does it throughout the city. And I mean, throughout the years, like I brought Will Smith to meet him post Malone. Like it's so much fun playing street golf with Tiger Hood. But everyone who who knows Tiger Hood (laughs) kind of knows him for that. But he also is an incredible photographer with one of the best collections of film photographs from like the late 90s, early 2000s. And I actually made a documentary about him a few years ago called Neighborhood Golf Association, if ever anyone wants to check that out, that explores um, his photography. My favorite photo of his is from the late 90s. It's a police officer arresting a clown in Times Square. And I wish I could pull the the photo up because I feel like need, <laughs> it needs to be seen. Maybe we can play audio. Yeah. yeah. I helped him make merch um, with the, the photo on sweatshirts and t-shirts and stuff. And when I did that, the police officer in the photo reached out to me and told me, like he explained the whole story of like why he had to arrest the clown and and I didn't believe him at first because he he DM'd me from like, a, there was no profile photo. He had no followers. So I was like, prove it. And he managed to find the, the a photo of the mugshot of the clown. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Bookman, which was such was a, he still in makeup? He was still in makeup. Yeah. Oh my God. So I believed him and he told me that coincidentally he was retiring this year. So Tiger linked up with him and brought him like a framed photo and uh yeah so just like stuff like that is is super cool to me even just listening to you talk just this small (laughs) amount of time i'm just like i'm seeing the film like the the like the filmmaker in you because you're basically talking about the human condition right i mean you're not just you're doing these individual stories and giving these people like a, a platform or a stage or a little spotlight, however you want to look at it. But, you know, collectively, yeah. you're, what you're saying, I think, about New York, New Yorkers, is really yeah. profound, right? I mean, this, there is a larger statement here, I think, that you're making, right? I think so. I mean, the reason why I started doing the Know Your City series was because I wanted to preserve this time in New York City. You know, I, I figured that a lot of these characters that I profiled would be gone years and years from now. And even though it's only been 10 years since I started doing Know Your City, I feel like maybe 80% of the, the f- people in the films that I made are, are not here for one reason or another. And that's kind of like the essence of, you know, what I do is I, I want to preserve this, this time in history um, in New York City. Hmm. So when did you go to City Island, by the way? I just saw that you posted. I was... I went, I went, so actually, I'm uh, I'm working on a book. I'm, I'm doing a New York City guidebook. It's tentatively called um, Nico and Friends Guide to New York. Oh, cool. You know, a bunch of my favorite businesses and a bunch of my friends' favorite businesses. And yesterday, we, we did the City Island tour. It's an amazing place. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to go to Johnny's Reef. First Johnny's Reef trip of the of the season is a very special one for me. Um, so I was about to ask, yeah, what you have uh, coming up on your plate. So you have that book, and yep. um, what else is um, what else is going on in the world aside from feeding your one point one million followers? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big one. Um, I started my career doing you know commercials and documentaries, and I'm um, doing a lot more of that now. So yeah. New York Nico is is not your full-time job. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, a lot of the commercial work that I do now kind of goes hand in hand with New York Nico, like, you know, I think my the latest thing that I put out was a a Knicks commercial. Oh, yeah. Playoffs. I worked with Tribeca Film to do a promo video for De Niro Con, which is happening in September. <laughs> wow. Oh, cool. Excellent. So, Definitely. you can see it on my Instagram or Google it. But yeah, so now like most of the commercial stuff that I do kind of goes hand in hand with with New York Nico. That's why I was wondering. There's a lot of times you have you've got especially sports content that it was like, oh, I, this. I guess you're kind of doing a little bit of that while you're doing a little bit of this, right? Essentially, yeah. but it all blends together. Like everybody I featured in those commercials are people who I featured on Instagram. 
Your father, by the way, has a brand new book. And um, can you give him give us a little details about because about him? Because he is. Yeah. A, you're a chip off the old block. <laughs> sure. Yeah. My, my dad uh, is, is Stephen Heller. He just uh, published his first memoir. He has quite the upbringing. You know, he's he's a born and raised New Yorker, grew up in Stytown. Um, and at the age of 17, he uh, became the art director of Screw Magazine, which was one of the first yeah. pornographic newspapers. And he Legendary. Worked, oh, yeah. He was working. He was the right-hand man of Al Goldstein at the time. Um, and then he left at like 21 to work at the New York Times t- to be the art director of the book review. But yeah, his book is called Growing Up Underground. And it's just, uh, I think, from the ages of 14 to 24 where he was, you know, working in the world of underground, <laughs> you know, but in the village, uh, right? It was all like village, that's, yes. that's so that's so incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for not only being on the show but for capturing these only in New York personalities. It's really fascinating. And listeners, if they have not seen it, check out New York Nico on Instagram and you'll be hooked. And then you'll have 1.1000002 followers. We'll we'll send some more your way. Nick, thank you so much. Have a great New York week, Nick. We'll see you soon. Have a great summer. Good luck with everything. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Nick. Have a good one. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amex slash you know. Today, we are so excited to be talking about diners, Greg. It's like our favorite <laughs> subject in the entire world. Wouldn't you know, on Instagram, 
there is a wonderful photographer by the name of Riley Arthur. Riley is a photographer and social media producer whose work explores cultural nostalgia, gentrification, diaspora, and communities on the margin. Riley's Instagram project, Diners of NYC, looks at the glorious history of these very special local eateries at a moment when many of them are closing. Quoting from Riley's website, this project is a living archive as well as an historical one. Uh, the work captures the architecture, communities, and culture around each diner, and it aims to ignite newfound interest into patronizing diners. And it is our great pleasure and honor to welcome Riley to our show today. Welcome, Riley. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, like, let's introduce you to our audience. Uh, where are you from? And tell us how you fell in love with New York diners. Yeah, so I am from American Samoa, which is in U.S. territory, 2,600 miles southwest of Hawaii. So about 2,600 miles from the nearest U.S. diner, because there were no diners <laughs> from where, when I grew up. Oh, um, no. So, no. So a lot of my interest in American nostalgia is completely adopted. It's not something I grew up with. When I moved to New York, I lived in Astoria, about a block away from a very famous diner called Neptune Diner. And, you know, I... And I'm sorry, when was that? When, when did you move to New York? 2016. Okay. And so I lived, you know, a block away from this diner and, and the uh, subway stop was there. And every day I would see this diner. And from the minute I saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, this diner sticks out like a sore thumb. It is architecturally <laughs> very different from the rest of it. It's in the shadow of skyscrapers. Like what is going on with this diner and how is it still here? So after living there for a while, the diner just became scenery. And I, you know, it was sort of chipping away at my, um, you know, the back of my mind, but it wasn't a priority anymore. And then I started to notice that diners were closing really rapidly. And I started putting two and two together and thought, well, me thinking that this diner doesn't necessarily fit the neighborhood is probably emblematic of why a lot of the M are disappearing. And after I really realized the trend, there was a couple of uh, pretty famous diners that closed in quick, uh, short order. And then I thought, okay, something's going on here. And I should start photographing them. Initially, I started out to photograph most architecturally unique and historic diners. Mm -hmm. And as probably with your research as well, you, you say, okay, well, who's doing this work already? Who can I look to as a guide? So I thought, well, it might as well be me. I'll just don't photograph them all, no big deal. Right. I had to kind of figure out um, what's a diner? What am I, how am I gonna do this? I went to the New York health inspectors list and, and found all of the diners but those were only restaurants with the name diner in the title. And at the time, uh -huh. there was... I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah because so, clearly, there are places that are just called restaurants yeah, or Tom's cafes restaurant. or luncheonette. Yep. It, exactly. Yeah. So, so what is a diner? Well, <laughs> yeah. So that is a hotly contested question. Actually, very controversial. I know it shouldn't be because everyone knows what a diner is, right? But... Mm -hmm. You know it when you know it. Yeah. You know it when you know it. That's actually not true. Um, historically speaking. <laughs> so there is a group of uh, diner aficionados and historians of which I am, I guess, by default, one of them. But <laughs> essentially, they will fight you tooth on nail on the textbook definition of what a diner is. So mm -hmm. a diner... What are the camps? What yeah. are the camps? <laughs> okay. A diner, by definition, is a factory-built, prefabricated building you know, like a, a rail line diner uh -huh. that you, you've, you know, and that is moved on site. Everything is manufactured in a factory, moved on site, and that is the structure of a, of a building of a diner. Anything else is what you would call a storefront diner or there's a few other qualifiers. So they say a true diner has to be built in the factory, has to be prefabricated, has to kind of be a standalone unit. Now, if you're in a city like New York City, that definition is very exclusionary and it takes away the majority of what I consider diners. So the other camp is a lot more lax on their definition and has sort of their own qualifiers for what makes a, a diner. And my definition is a bit more broad. So I look at the architecture. Does it have booth seating? Does it have counter seating or one or the other? Does it have certain menu items? Is it open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? 
Now, not all of these diners in New York have all of these things, but if they have enough of these qualifiers, then I can consider it a diner. So wait, do you include the kind of like fancy places that call themselves diner to sort of have a kind of kitsch appeal, even though they have like a $22 chicken sandwich? Yes, I, mean, I do. That... I do. But I also have in my documentation uh, a folder called Not a Diner, where I have, you know, <laughs> about 35 different places that I've documented and then since gone, eh, it doesn't really match. But I'm going to just keep them in here in case I ever change my mind or anything ever comes up. So pulling back here then, so you've got this definition of the kind of restaurant that you're classifying as a diner. Sure. How many are there? How big is this list that you've compiled? So I usually say around 400. Uh, I will say since I started the project in 2016, there have been 113 diners that I've documented that have closed. (sighs) So we're losing them at about a rate of 16 diners a year. And that might not seem like a big problem, But Mm -hmm. again, at the beginning of this project, I was shooting them as fast as I could because I realized I was the only one documenting them. I didn't get to everyone. So my number are only the the restaurants that I've documented. You know what I like about your photography is you capture the everyday atmosphere of a regular New York diner. You know, there are some people out there who are looking at places like diners from a kitschier perspective, right? That there's like a kind of more hyper depiction of diners based on architecture and things like that. But you let the viewer find something really interesting in every angle of a diner, right? The the counters and the booths and even the menus and the menu boards, right? What is it about the interior that appeals to you, like as a photographer, but really, I guess, you know, as a diner herself. I like to say that people don't go for diners for the food. People patron them (laughs) for the experience. You want it to Mm -hmm. feel similar. You want it to have a very distinctive feel. And so that's what I really aim to capture in my photography. I, I don't do a lot of cropping. I don't do a whole lot of editing. What you see is pretty much taken from, you know, said angle and that that's capturing the experience from every angle. I also collect menus as well. So I'm, I'm collecting an archive of menus, but I want to document the various things that have to do with the experience of, of eating in a diner from sitting at a counter to, I don't document food all that much because it's less interesting to me, as I said, but, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'll get in, in the back of kitchens sometimes. They'll take me in and I'll, t- I'll shoot in the back of kitchens or what have you. So really capturing the experience of a diner. And some of the diners, frankly, are grittier than others. And some are prettier than others. And some are not photogenic. Mm-hmm. So I don't get to choose that. But it's my responsibility to really capture the essence of a place. Yeah. And again, yeah, you said that you, you know, when we walk in, we know... We're in a diner. When you walk into Tom's restaurant at 113th, 112th, 113th, 12th in Broadway, you know it's a diner. Yep. Though it says Tom's restaurant. So let's just let's take Tom's as an example. Sure, it's a great and not one. just because I ate there every morning my freshman year at Columbia, but <laughs> you walk in. What do what do you see that immediately says diner? Is it the booths, the counter? The smell? It's the orientation. The 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 booths and counter are are pretty good signifiers for me. Menus as well. Menu design. Menu items. The vibe as well. Like who's eating there? Um, what's what's mm. the atmosphere like? Is it multi generational uh, families? And the the communities, the patron diners, also vary quite a bit, borough to borough and neighborhood to neighborhood as well. What I like about it too is it's welcoming of all. In a diner, you can sit at the counter for six hours drinking one cup of coffee and you will never be <laughs> rushed. You, it, it's almost mm-hmm. a European mentality. You can You'll can. Ta- you probably get a refill. You, you will. <laughs> you can talk to strangers. So the you know, etiquette of, of a diner is really different because you can be chatty. And that's not something that New Yorkers typically do uh, with strangers necessarily. So it's really a different feel where you can kind of feel at home. The The waitresses will spend more time with you. The waitresses identify themselves as waitresses and that's their profession. Yes. And mm-hmm. they're very serious about it. That's a lot of things, but you can also expect certain menu items to be something you could order at, at almost any diner in the city. Soups, 
cakes, things like that, you you really come to expect. And so those are things I, I look for. As the project has continued over the years, people have become a lot more inviting of me taking photos before I had to be a lot more sly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting change. But um, you know, one <laughs> aspect that we didn't mention yet about diners is, you know, they often represent the immigrant identity of a neighborhood. So like Greek diners are a lot of them have clothes, but you know, that's very, very common. But diners, you know, can represent many communities in the city. And, and that is another way of celebrating a diversity of diners is, you know, going to a neighborhood that might have a Dominican flavor and then finding diners that are sp- specific to that cuisine and yeah then greek and even italian going all over the city so how do you approach your documentation of diners from that perspective yeah that's a really good question so there are a few different diners that now have buffets well not so much in covid those have kind of gone away but there's uh, a handful of indian owned diners there's one called Halal Diner or Punjabi Diner, and they serve Indian food exclusively. There's Jackson Diner, which is in Jackson in the Heights. They serve. They used to serve quite a large Indian buffet, and because they had such a large Indian buffet, they were a large restaurant, and they've really struggled since the beginning of COVID because they had to shut that down quickly, and that was really what brought people in. So they've had to kind of optimize in other ways. In some areas, there is a strong Caribbean uh, community and there's Caribbean items. There is also a burgeoning Egyptian diner owner scene where the the Greek owners are selling to Egyptians. So it's really interesting Mm. to see that the change of hands, even in the last sort of decade from immigrant community to immigrant community. I'm also finding that in the Greek diners, Oftentimes, they, the ones that are selling or closing are not due to the fact that they're not successful, but their children do not want to inherit or buy into the business. They've seen their parents spend decades working seven days a week or what have you. They don't want to work that hard. I mean, they've told me as such, their parents have told me as such, and frankly, who can blame them? Because if a restaurant's open for 24 hours, you're, as an owner, probably going to be there for 12 a day. Or... They don't want to be working that hard and have their parents semi-retire still telling them what to do, so, <laughs> as mm-hmm. is pretty common in, in Greek-owned uh, diners. So it's an interesting shift in the demographics of, of in immigrant communities. I, I know it's impossible for you to say what your favorite diner is, and I think it might be even unfair for you to. <laughs> is there, but is there one diner that's currently open in New York City that you want to champion and tell everyone that's listening to go to that diner and get a meal? Is there one in particular that you would like to put your endorsement behind? It's challenging for me to recommend a diner for people to go to because I get that question all the time. People DM me on my Instagram and they say, hey, I'm in New York for a few days. Where should I go? And my answer is always, where are you? Because if I send you somewhere and they go, oh, no, no, I'm willing to travel. And they never are. They're like, oh, how, how willing are <laughs> yeah. you? Because you want to go to City Island? I can send you up there. You know, I mean, people just don't travel. Uh-huh. That said, there are really great diners in Staten Island. And my favorite diner of all time is the Colonnade in Staten Island. And Greg, Tom, go. You will be blown oh, away. Yeah. Sold. Go. We'll go. So what I like about the Colonnade is it takes... Every single element of a diner, like anything that you could think on the top of your head, what's a diner? Mm -hmm. It has all of it. And it is, they claim to be the largest diner on the East Coast. I don't necessarily think that that's accurate, (laughs) but that's their claim to fame. (laughs) Um, They are so large. They have an elevator. Uh, They have a, a ballroom or banquet room. They have an insane amount of neon. And they're so nice there. They've got great food. But moreover, it just sort of has every single thing that you could possibly think of that makes a diner. They have it. It's almost like if it was in Disneyland, it would make sense almost because there's that much sort of <laughs> dinerness. Um, but it's authentic and it's not retro. It's, it's, uh, it's been there forever. 
And so I would say the colonnade is worth the trip to Staten Island alone, and they will thank you for going. <laughs> and and finally, resolve this debate. Is Junior's Cheesecake a diner? <laughs> okay. Is it a diner? Or is oh it, is it, or is it really a restaurant? Do you really want to leave on it? This is going to like... <laughs> Cause some real consternation in the comment section, but go for it. Okay, Greg, I, I think you're setting me up to fail here. So no, oh no, no. <laughs> okay, I, I swear, I swear. So I say, in my categorization, Juniors is in my diner folder for Brooklyn. There mm-hmm. is a Juniors or two in Manhattan. There are two mm-hmm. in the Midtown area. I will say those are not diners, but. Again, they're restaurants that are Americana-ish with lots of cheesecake, and they're for tourists. The original Junior's location, I would say, is a diner, but just barely. No, I'm going to 100% endorse everything you just said, because that is my... Like, the Junior's in in Brooklyn has a diner-esque feel... But it's also kind of something different, right? So, but it, but mm-hmm. you're just going to what you said that like a diner can take in New York City can often take many different shapes and sizes depending on the community that it needs to to service. Yeah, and I will say Juniors is worth going to regardless. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think in fact we should go right now and hash it out over some cheesecake. <laughs> you in? <laughs> yeah. So, so Riley, thank you so much for joining us. This has been look. We can you can. As you could hear, we could talk about this for like another hour, (laughs) actually for longer than it would take to eat a meal at a diner. And if our listeners haven't already done so, you need to follow Riley at Diners of NYC on Instagram and check out her amazing photography and this incredible project that she has put herself on really for the benefit of all of us. Thank you so much, Riley. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. For our guest today is someone I've been following for many months and is an incredibly entertaining guy on Instagram. I'm not even on TikTok, but I, you're apparently bigger on TikTok. <laughs> so anyway, this is let me just introduce Tommy Silk, a.k.a. Landmarks of New York. Tommy, hello. Very nice to be here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, you can explain TikTok to us later. No, Greg, (laughs) we're making ourselves sound old here. Uh, But first, we wanted to talk to you about you and your story and where you came from and um, how you got so interested in New York history. It's funny because that's a thing that people ask us all the time. How do you guys get interested in New York history? How did you get so interested in New York history? It's multifaceted, I think, as most of these things are. But the big thing for me, so I grew up in southwestern Connecticut, my dad's side of the family is all Connecticut natives. My mom's side is all New York natives. And mm-hmm. my grandfather on my mother's side was a, you know, born and bred Washington Heights, 188th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. He met my grandmother, who was born in Bay Ridge, who grew up in Parkchester. They worked at a uh, Catholic school in the Bronx together. And he was a history teacher for, I think, like 40 years. And then he ended up becoming the uh, Rockland County historian a little later in life as he moved out there. Yeah. But he mm-hmm. and I basically, I was the first grandkid. So he and I had a very close relationship. We share the same name. And wow. he just really kind of ignited that general love for history and local history because he was always so interested in everything that happened around where he was. I never understood growing up, but he thought the Tappan Zee Bridge was the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. And every time we'd take that bridge across to go see them and, you know, you could kind of look over the side of the car and see Mm -hmm. through the floor of the bridge. I was kind of like, what the heck is this guy on about? But then as I got older, I kind of was like, oh, wait a minute, like maybe not the bridge itself, but the Hudson. I, I never really appreciated the Hudson until basically I was I was firmly living in New York. But I went to Fordham University up in the Bronx, majored in American history and was always that was always the goal is you know when am i moving into new york mm-hmm. and i think i always had a 
slight appreciation for places where history might not be so obvious. Because when I was little, we mm-hmm. you know we do our trips up to Boston, we go down to DC uh, every once in a while to Philly, and they just that just kind of reaches out and grabs you. And New York, you don't really get that. And I feel just purely anecdotally from when I was you know my own experience, but I feel like not a lot of people when you think New York, you don't really think history, and you don't really realize that it's also older than Boston or Philadelphia. And the town that I grew up in in Connecticut got burnt down mostly during the revolution. And we only had a handful of houses from before 1776. So when you actually found a pre-revolutionary house or a house that had survived the burning, it was just that much more special. And I feel like Mm -hmm. with New York, you're kind of peeling peeling back five different layers of things that have been built over. And when you finally Mm -hmm. get down, you find, you know any remnants of, you know, the Dutch, or if you go down to the bottom of Staten Island, you see that we still have an archaeological site for the Native Americans lived here. It's like a treasure hunt in a way. It's And it's that much more interesting when you find it. And I think for me, what really kind of set it off was I'd been out of college for a while. I went from history into financial software, as one does, and I wanted uh-huh. something to scratch that itch. And I happened to be working at a pretty crappy job. And I would walk home from Midtown to the Upper East Side where I was living. And I just try to wander different side streets. Hey, look at that plug. (laughs) Every time I went back and I would find the the Landmarks Preservation Commission plaques on the sides of buildings. I'd stop and I'd read. I think the one that really sort of set it off was uh, the Roosevelt home on the Upper Mm -hmm. East Side. I was like, you know what? I really... I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper and and find out more about what's going on around me. So basically found the Landmarks Preservation Commission site, started looking into that, borrowed my sister's camera and and just started snapping some pictures. I'd never done photography before. And and when was this? Sorry, when when did this Oh yeah, sort sorry. Of so this kick this off? was 2019 and in 2018 I just for fun, I decided to take the New York City uh, sightseeing guide mm-hmm. test. The 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 whole premise behind Landmarks of New York when I started it was it was just one picture a day with a little summary of what the building is. Is there anybody interesting involved with it? Why is it there? What's the significance? And how long can I keep that up? So it's it's been almost four years and, and we're still going strong. But wow. uh, And are you on the daily schedule? Yes. One a day. Now, the, the plus side is the fact that I've been doing this for so long that I have such a big back catalog of things that I'm not writing them every day anymore. Yeah. I can, you know, recycle a little bit. And I've had plenty of new people who join from year to year. So I usually, if it if it's been a year, I'll start reusing some of the other ones. But if I can get out, especially in the winter, because when you have a full-time job, a uh, golden hour for photography is about an hour and a half before I get out of work. So I kind of yeah. need to work on that. And then in the summer, I'll just go out and try to get as much as humanly possible. One aspect that I really like about the videos that you make is the fact that as you are focused on landmarks, you're often focusing on buildings that are tall. It works really effectively with the vertical format because you're able to speak about something and it's right behind you. Yeah. Video came within the past year or so just because whether it's it's TikTok or Instagram trying to pretend to be TikTok, there was more of an emphasis put on that. So I really didn't want to make any of this about myself. It was always about the buildings. And then I realized that the algorithm will reward you if you show your face and just get out there. I was apprehensive at first, but then it also opened up different opportunities that if you're just doing a picture and a caption, you can't quite do it like that. I think one of my most popular ones was uh, talking about a building that doesn't exist anymore, the old Penn Station, where Mm -hmm. I could then use the video to then throw in a bunch of old pictures, show what's there today and use that to sort of effectively communicate to a much generally younger audience. There were The amount of responses of, I had no idea that was there, was kind of mind-boggling, even from people who had lived here for a long time. So it, it opens up this whole new world of ways to kind of educate in a more informal manner. I think that's one of the nice aspects of social media is if I'm doing my job right, I want it to be like you and I are just standing in front of this building talking together. Mm-hmm. And I, I purposely think if I'm on the phone with one of my best friends who we do you have these conversations? What does that sound like? And that's that's kind of what I'm going for. And uh, what kind of actual like physical, like on the ground tours do you operate? Yeah, so I only do three. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could do more with uh, with everything going on and still make it interesting. The The one I started off at the beginning is just all lower Manhattan. So what can we find? Where are the remnants of the Dutch? 
Where were the important parts of the Native Americans? How did the city expand from this tiny little speck on the uh, bottom of the island of Manhattan? So that basically stretches from Bowling Green up to the African burial ground. Mm -hmm. I have one of the West Village and then I have one of Brooklyn Heights. And that kind of hits a lot of the the early New York, which I think that's where a lot of people don't quite know too much because there's not much left. And I personally love the history of all those places. So that's where I set the tours out to be. Well, now, Tommy, why don't we bring in our producer, Kieran? Hello, Kieran. Hello, everyone. Who's been cooking up a couple questions uh, for you and also for us to kind of talk about one of our favorite things and your clearly favorite thing, landmarks of, mm-hmm. of New York. Yep. So, all right, easy first one. What is your favorite landmark from each of the five boroughs? Ooh. Are you going to take us borough by borough, Kieran? Or better yet, to save time, how about we do round robin? The person who starts first chooses oh. a borough. That there way it's five answers as opposed to 15 answers, which might be a little crazy. Tommy, since you're the guest, why don't you start first, actually? Sure. So uh, I guess for Manhattan, and this this is not just my favorite landmark in Manhattan, this is my favorite landmark in the five boroughs, but the Little Red Lighthouse under the George Washington mm-hmm. Bridge is my hands down Number one, that was my favorite book as a kid growing up, The Little Red Lighthouse and the Great Gray Bridge. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather and and his father would walk down to the Little Red Lighthouse every single night when they were growing up in Washington Heights. So the personal connection, the story of it being there, it's just and the fact that for years driving down the West Side Highway, I didn't know it existed until I could finally actually because you're craning your neck. You can't actually see it from there. So when I finally was able to get up there, the fact that it was real, that was the biggest thrill for me. I'm sensing like a book or a project that you're going to work on soon that's just on New York City and children's book landmarks. <laughs> that's what I am I'm envisioning for you in the near future. So just keep that keep that pointed. Ta- Stuart Little. Keep that in the back Stuart pocket. Little. I think yes. they're in there too. Tom, why don't you be second? Pick a borough. Okay. Well, since you've been in, in Manhattan, shall I go to Staten Island? Hmm. Okay. I was looking through the book earlier today, The Landmarks of New York, a huge compendium of books. And I was surprised and looking through your feed, Tommy, and surprised by how many are in Staten Island, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Staten Island has so many historic landmarks. And a few that I've been to include the Conference House, which is fabulous, but also the Alice Austin House which was the home of the photographer and dates back to 1700. It's really, really old. And it's um, it's a fabulous example to see how somebody continued to live in this really, really old house even like not so long ago. And it's today a wonderful photography museum um, that I feel like is one of those underappreciated museums in New York. Greg, I'm heading to you. Okay, so... I might be cheating a little bit, but I'm going to choose the Bronx, but it's a, the whole place is landmark, but it isn't a landmark because I, well, I, I could choose one building in the place. What I'm about to say- Are you talking say, a historic district? I'm talking City Island in the Bronx. You oh. guys been to City Island? Love it. Yeah. So to me, it's one of the most mysterious and enigmatic places in New York City. It, it has a ton of historic buildings and the bridge over it is actually is historic as well. So I'm going to I'm gonna call this a landmark, but it's just this captivating bubble really of a place that is, but I think it says a lot about the development of New York in the 19th century, but also it happens to be across the water from Hart Island which I guess is another place, not really to visit, but like it just goes to show you, I think it says a lot about like how the islands have impacted New York City history. Okay, Tommy, we're back to you. We have, um, we've gone to Manhattan, Staten Island, the Bronx. Take us to Queens. Oh, this is gonna make it so hard. I feel bad picking anyone in Queens because they have so many good ones. The the problem with finding them in Queens at least from my perspective, since I'm biking most of these places, is they're so spread mm. out that it is so difficult to actually get to. But I'm going to go with, oh, this is a tough one. I'm going to go with the uh, the John Bound House in Flushing. Yeah. Really anything in mm-hmm. Flushing is phenomenal, uh, just based on the amount of stuff that happened out there. But I love... You know, like I said, having grown up in in Connecticut, anytime you can find one of these old little salt box houses from before 
the revolution i think that's great and it's just they've done such a good job preserving it and the fact that the bound family lived there for so many generations and only recently similar with the the riker house would be my sort of backup apart from that but you have so many of these old families that stayed there for generation after generation after generation well into the 20th century i just think that's so fascinating yeah it's just so weird to stumble into these types of houses in New York City. I mean, a a point that you were making earlier about the fact that people sometimes don't think of New York City as being historic. It's because it's a city that's constantly moving and growing and growing up and growing out. So when you go to these houses, it is like a true time capsule. All right, Tom, that leaves you with Brooklyn. (laughs) I mean, I have to choose um, a landmark of Brooklyn. I mean, there, there are so Many, I might just throw myself at the mercy of Brooklyn Heights and just say all of it. But Greg, you are the one. Well, actually, and we also did the Flatbush Dutch Reformed Church in a recent episode, which is a fabulous landmark unto itself. But Greg, as a Brooklyn resident, why don't, can I just throw that round to you? Sure. Just to be cheeky, I'm going to say Sonny's and Red Hook. The I oh. believe it is now the oldest bar in, in Brooklyn. It's a little tricky the dates, obviously, when you when you bring it, bring this up, but I believe Sunny's is now the oldest bar. There was a place in Carroll Gardens that claimed the title, then it closed a few years ago. I think so Sunny's, because it kind of embodies the spirit of that neighborhood of Red Hook, that kind of mm-hmm. maritime, salty s- sailor type of feel. Mm-hmm. So, all right, here's another question. And Tommy, you kind of mentioned this at the top of the show, actually, but I had wanted to know from each of you, Is there, by chance, a popular New York City tourist destination that people might be surprised to learn you've never been to? Oh. Mm. Revealing our flaws. (laughs) It's daring here. For me, it was the Empire State Building until recently as well. Well, because those obvious things, because it's just like, oh, well, if if you're going to do this for a living or like a serious hobby or whatever, like you never start at like, well, I'm going to do Times Square, then I'm going to do the Empire State Building. Like you don't start there. And so sometimes those things get overlooked, which is fine. Tommy, do you have one? So I think based on the most stereotypical one, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. Mm. I've never, the closest I've gotten is the Staten Island Ferry. But actually with the Statue of Liberty, I mean, I've never, I I guess I've been in the Statue of Liberty. I've never been up to the crown. I think a lot of native New Yorkers have never actually done that because it's always been associated with mass crowds and it's not the easiest Mm -hmm. thing to get to. Tom, what about you? I have never ice skated at Rockefeller Center. That's something that like the stuff of Hollywood movies and same kind of thing. I see people lining up. So never done it. I need to add that I've never seen the Knicks. Mm. Uh. And I feel like that is something that like, at this point in my life, I should have done that at least once, right? I mean, I have seen the, I've seen the Met, I've seen the Yankees several times and the Mets a couple times. Um, I've only been to the current Yankee Stadium once, although that's kind of new, so I guess I can get away with that. But yeah, I think I, think I got to see the, see the Knicks at the Garden. I mean, I saw Billy Joel at the Garden. That feels like the closest I've gotten to an authentic New York City experience at the Garden, but I got to go to the Knicks. Yeah. Top of the Rock. Never been to Top of the Rock. Top of the Rock is my always go-to. I have people visiting from out of town, so let's mm-hmm. go up there because it was cheaper than the Empire State Building and you could actually see the Empire State Building. And so that was right. generally a fairly good option before all these other crazy observatories opened up. Yeah. Have you guys been to the Edge before? No. I won't, no. I won't go, I won't do, I won't <laughs> no, do that, not gone. with my fear of heights. Gone. But Tom, I have to say, like, maybe you and I did go to Top of the Rock, or at least at, at close to the Top of the Rock, when it was the cabaret Rainbow and Stars. In the Rainbow Room. Yes, right. The Rainbow Room was the top of the, yeah, Rockefeller yes. Center. So, I, I think I remember, I, I don't, maybe you were with, seeing Maureen McGovern. It was always that kind of show. Maureen mm. McGovern at the Rainbow and Stars. <laughs> yeah. It was like a classic cabaret night. So that's, maybe you have done that. Before I went to the top of the Empire State Building, I had only been for job interviews. Oh, Oh, cool. but you had, so you had been in there for other purposes. I had yeah. been in, I'd never gone to the top. Again, crippling fear of heights as well. So it was interesting when you get to go to the 103rd floor, which is outside. Figure yeah. that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm just going to shove myself out that door and... <laughs> 
hug the wall all the way around. <laughs> but uh, don't you don't have to give your opinion on this, but you should be looking at it from like the one world trade or yeah, maybe the edge. You should be looking at you want to see the Empire State Building mm. in your eyeline. You want it to be part of your New York view that you're experiencing and paying all this money for. And so when you're in the Empire State Building, you're looking around, you're like, "Okay, this is great, but what's missing?" It's the Empire State Building. True. So I know it's a popular tourist attraction. I'm not going to diss them for for getting people. I thoroughly up there. enjoy going up there. Yes. I've, been, I've been up several times. I think it's great. It's thrilling. I like it too. Thrilling. <laughs> I just had a question for for Tommy because he's been so dedicated to landmarks and landmarking. We we did a show a few years ago on the landmarking process. Um, but still, just kind of again looking through your feet and seeing all these wonderful buildings. This question kind of gnaws at me, which is. Why do certain buildings become landmarked? Like, what is it, in your opinion, that justifies giving a building landmark status and basically preventing it, it, let's say, its exterior from being changed? Is it just that they're interesting, historically significant? What, what do you think it is? This this is going to be probably semi-controversial on my part, but I think it's it's semi-political. It's going to depend on, you know, neighborhood. And I think for individual landmarks, so I guess the the breakdown is you have your individual landmarks, you have your landmark historic districts, there are interior landmarks, and there are scenic landmarks. And and I've seen examples where buildings that you might think would be landmarked were not, and buildings that you didn't think would be landmarked are. So part of this whole process is me trying to understand that exact question. So the the long answer to that question is, I don't know. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah. the longer answer is, there are just so many different things. I guess it also depends on how well the case is made for the building. Because I've seen a few instances in the past couple of years where there are buildings that were about to be landmarked that were torn down. There are buildings that are landmarked that were torn down. 14, I think it's 14 Gay Street comes mm-hmm. to mind, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is right now. very, very disappointing. I, I should, probably should have pointed out during the show that I, I have no affiliation whatsoever with the Landmarks Preservation Commission. I found that handle online and I grabbed it. But it's been very interesting to kind of, from an outside perspective, to sort of through osmosis learn about this process that has gone from the destruction of Penn Station and the saving of Grand Central to something that encompasses over 37,000 buildings in the city, which is a mind-blowing number. I people ask me, are you ever going to run out of topics? And I'm like, no, I got a couple <laughs> lifetimes worth of content for me here. And that's just like landmarks with a capital L, as opposed to like, in fact, like landmarks can be any any building in New York can be is a landmark of something, perhaps in New York City. That is, I think Macy's is a great example. Macy's is not a designated landmark, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't think of it as a lowercase landmark. And, and, and it's interesting because you, you do see situations where, you know, I've, I've had people ask me like, hey, I'm doing a renovation of my brownstone. Do you have any sway over there? I want to change the doorknob and they don't want to let me do it. And I'm like, I can't help with that. But it's interesting that, you know, it can be a situation where, you know, changing a door is a month long process. But meanwhile, oh, man, 75 percent of our load bearing wall in the basement mysteriously disappeared. I guess we have to tear this thing down. So it's yeah, it's it's complicated. Mm-hmm. We hope that everyone searches you out if they're not already f- following you. And I, I suspect that most of our listeners are. Uh, that's Landmarks of New York, both on Instagram and on TikTok. And where else can people find you? Uh, you can look at for me on YouTube. Not a whole lot going on there, but it does exist. And landmarksofny.com. Well, Tommy Silk, this has been most fun. Thank you so much for joining Greg and I today. It's on the Bowery Boys. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.